Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Lewis Lapham and Harper's Magazine are forever linked. As its editor for nearly 30 years, Lapham began each issue with Notebook, an essay written in his beautifully precise prose on the political and cultural climate of our times. He's been compared to Twain and to Montaigne. His expensive-looking suits, complete with pocket square, evoke another comparison. To sit with Lapham, you're struck with the sensation that you've stumbled onto some film noir set, and some of the stories he recounts belong to that genre, like when he got his first job as a rookie reporter at the San Francisco Examiner. This is 1957. Reporters would lie around on couches with hats over their faces waiting for news of a murder. And then I, as the cub, would go out to the scene of the murder with the Photographer. The photographer had a speed Graflex camera, wore a shark-skin suit, and a loud hand-painted tie, and his name was Seymour Snare. <laughs> Seymour and I would uh, prowl the lower depths in order to find sensational headlines for the first edition. In those days, the paper had six or seven editions, and we would do the late afternoon edition with the murder head headline. And the, How uh, old were you? I was 22. So you were a kid? Uh, entirely a kid. And, I mean, and you, this was not the background you came from. You didn't come no, from a no. tough working class background. No, no, no. And that's one of the Describe reasons. Describe where you came from. Well, I, I came out of the, uh, you know, the affluent, privileged... Uh, San Francisco society. San Francisco society. My, my uh, grandfather was the mayor of the city between 1942 and 1946 during World War II. And he would go out on the launch to meet carriers when they would come in from the Pacific War. And I would be piped aboard with the mayor to meet Admiral Nimitz or Admiral Halsey on the bridge of the Enterprise. And... Also, he, as the mayor, presided over the charter of the United Nations in 1945 in San Francisco, and he made sure that uh, I was excused from school to attend the plenary sessions, and then he would give diplomatic cocktail parties, and I can remember at the age of 10 passing 
canapes to Molotov and to Stettinius and to Alger Hiss and uh, John Foster Dulles. <laughs> and then I went to uh, boarding school in New England and from there to Yale University and after that to uh, Cambridge, England. At Cambridge, Lapham considered becoming a history professor, but decided he wasn't cut out for the footnotes. Then he briefly toyed with acting, but realized he was only good at playing characters to whom he was sympathetic. In the end, journalism called. Lewis Lapham says he was a precious youth when he got back from England and took the job at the San Francisco Examiner. He had a lot to learn. I can remember, Alec, the first piece I ever wrote for the for the paper was in Oakland. They sent me to cover a flower show, and I went to the flower show, and I wrote 4,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> and with all kinds of wonderful adjectives sure. straight out of Henry James, right? <laughs> and the senior guy in, on the beat in Oakland was a man named Crowley. And he looked at me and he said... Lewis, these are the most beautiful 4,000 words <laughs> I have ever read. He said, there were tears in my eyes. But he said, I tell you what, why don't you see if you can cut it in half? Great pain. Sure. I was, you know, destroying uh, your child. Immortal. I, I brought it back to Crowley, and Crowley looked at him and said, Lewis, I thought the first 4,000 words were truly beautiful, but these are even more beautiful. But <laughs> see if you can cut it in half again. And we went through this yeah. over a period of, it finally came out as one paragraph. Oh, and what I learned in the newspaper business was to write on deadline, but also to uh, trim and concision. Uh, concision. Yeah. And, and then when you. And left the other the- reason, of course, to be in the newspaper business was to learn about the. You know, the American democracy. I mean, I didn't know how a city worked or what politics were or, you know, I'd I'd lived a privileged life in in a bubble. What were some of the first insights you had into the American political system from that (laughs) point? It was was really about who you knew. I mean, it it wasn't the— Right or wrong. It was what was the deal? What was the trade? Uh, Could we both get something out of this? It mattered that you could speak well, that you were adroit, also that you liked people. My sense of most of the politicians I've known have been that they have genuine liking for their their fellow human beings. I mean, there are, there are exceptions. Uh, Such I, as? Uh, <laughs> Cheney would be a beautiful example. Right. I mean, Cheney, I think, and, and the trouble with so many of the... Uh, conservative politicians that have been in power of, uh, over the last 30 years is, is there, they don't have that quality, or at least they don't seem to me to have that quality. You see, this is the difference between a democratic society is one and it is held together by mutual feeling and respect for one's fellow citizen. I hold my fellow citizen in thoughtful regard, not because he is beautiful or rich or famous, but because he is my fellow citizen. The kind of a society that gathers around a, uh, a court, the kind of society that you would see in a, 
the court of either Elizabeth I or Louis XIV, uh, a court society is one where it is all about interest. It is all about uh, hanging in the trapeze of one's connections. And what it, it's very, very uh, cold. Uh, I mean, that's the whole move toward the resort uh, gated community. I mean, the, uh, the, the rich the, uh, in the United States today I mean, live in a completely different world. But, but do you think it's always been that way? Me- meaning, are the wealthy today different from the wealthy two generations ago, three generations ago? I, I think they probably are. I mean, there's always a distinction between there's always a class distinction. I mean, you, you can. Ha- there's no society in the history of mankind that hasn't been organized along some form of class distinction. I mean, we organize it in, in terms of money. We were doing that pretty much from the beginning. I mean, the the settlement in Plymouth in in 1620 is is a venture capital deal. <laughs> uh, it is. I mean, it's backed by by merchant bankers in in. Uh, London. Well, well, first of all, if you when you talk about uh, people aligning themselves from the yeah. beginning on yeah. the basis of class, yeah, and I'm wondering how you've experienced that in your family. What was your father's politics to the extent you want to say? And did you differ from your family? Were, were your politics because your politics are pretty? I wouldn't use the word liberal or progressive, but their but their candor is the watchword here. I think. Yeah. No. My, my were they disappointed in the way you? Or the, or no, the way you no, no. No. Was your father a pretty open-minded guy? Yes, my father had been very strongly in favor of Roosevelt in 1932, and his father, my grandfather, the one who became the mayor, was uh, strongly conservative uh, Republican who, who thought that. Uh, FDR was the end of the world. Sure, wouldn't carry a dime in his pocket. Kind of <laughs> right. Yeah. On the other hand, by the time grandfather got to be mayor of San Francisco in 1942, he ran as an independent, and he was very open. I mean, he would pick hitchhikers up. He never had a you know a bodyguard. He, he never had tinted windows. He he, more he used to like to go into the you know. Uh, saloons in San Francisco late at night, and and the uh, he wanted to get a uh, bond issue passed to replace the streetcars on Market Street with buses, and there was some resistance about that. So he put it to a bet. He said, "Okay, there'll be a race. I will race." From the ferry building to City Hall, I will ride an elephant against a trolley car. And if the elephant beats the trolley car, we have the bond issue. If not, not. But he was a gambling man, so he insisted on a handicap. And the handicap was that the elephant would be allowed to go through red lights. The elephant won. <laughs> the bond, the bond issue passed. <laughs> now, when you leave uh, San Francisco, three years yeah. doing the, the, yeah. paper, the newspaper, where do you go from there? I go to New York. I go from the San Francisco Examiner. I come to New York, the Herald Tribune. How long were you there? I was there uh, two years. What did you write about for them? First of all, I was general assignment. Cover the city, the mayor, crime. Who was the mayor? 
uh, Wagner, Wagner, I think. Yeah, Robert. Yeah. And then I was sent to the UN. I became the third correspondent over there. I was at the UN when Khrushchev was there, pounding his shoe on the table, and when Castro was there, carrying the chickens to Harlem. I was then sent down to write about the the uh, Cape Canaveral, the first subspace shot. So, you know, I did a, a lot of different things. Right. So after the Herald Tribune, what did you do? There was a new magazine called USA One, and I, I became staff writer for the new magazine. It folded after six months. <laughs> I then became a staff writer for the Saturday Evening Post, which was a big deal in, in 1963. Yeah, they were still going strong. They were still going strong. I mean, in 1960, life and the Saturday Evening Post were the equivalent of what the networks became by the end of the 60s. Right. If the president wanted to talk to the American people, he would either sit down with Joseph or Stuart Alsop for the back page interview in the Post or with Teddy White in the back page interview life. That was mass media. Back in the time, people also, I remember my grandfather in the early 60s, and he lived in Brooklyn, he, he would read five newspapers a day. There was a morning paper. There was an evening paper. Oh, yeah. You know, New York was swimming in newspapers. Then. There were 11 newspapers in New York in 1960 when I came, including the Brooklyn Eagle, which right. was— That was the paper he read that, yeah. The best newspaper, by in some people's opinion, in the whole, all the five boroughs. Right. So I traveled all over the world for the Saturday Post. I mean, I went to—did stories in California, went and sp spent uh, two weeks with the Beatles— and the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and in, 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 <laughs> in Rishikesh. What was what was that experience like? Can you encapsulate that? What was it like hanging out with them in India? Well, or did you get any time with them? No, not really. I, I, got, I got I got a little time with them. The the uh, there was something called transcendental meditation, which was um, all the rage in 1967. And the Maharishi was giving people mantras and in you know handing whispering them in their ears. And and the, the Beatles had gone there for a retreat. They needed and to chill out. They needed to chill out. Being a Beatle was stressful. Stressful. I mean, stressful. The, the, the pressure. Signing of, all those love letters, singing yes. those songs. McCartney yeah. told me once that they would record four songs a day. They wanted to keep the studio time down to a minimum. It was expensive. So they record oh, yeah. two songs in the morning, then they go have some fish and chips, smoke a cigarette, come back and do two songs in the afternoon. Well, it was a real grind, he said, being a Beatle in the early days. But but by 1967, they're the biggest thing in the sure. world. Now they're taking a little more time. I was sent to become a part, to, to somehow get into the ashram. No press, of course, was allowed. So how, how would you do that? When, they, when someone you're working for says, go get into the ashram, how do you do that? Politics. It's deal-making. First of all, I studied. I went to California to talk to devotees of, of the Maharishi. So you did a little briefing. So that when I got to Rishikesh, and I got in the cab, and I, I said to the driver. To the ashram. I said, to Rishikesh. And he says, <laughs> you go Beatles. I said, I go Beatles. And it was $12, 112 miles. Those were the days. <laughs> Those were the days. And then I found out that. One of the Maharishi's main men, Ragvenda, a major d domo, would come down once or twice a day to the town to shop. And I struck with an acquaintance with Ragvenda, impressed Ragvenda as to my 
knowledge of, of he dropped a few I, clever phrases here. I understand. He, he understood bon mot of the of the transcendental world. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Worked my way into the confidence of Ragbent, and yeah. then explained to him that I was from the Saturday Evening Post, biggest media in America, and the the Maharishi was a publicity hound. Yeah. But believe me, it was in no way critical. I I was here to gaze into into the into the mysteries of 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 the east and to and at the same time make the maharishi the martha stewart exactly, of transcendental exactly. Yeah, you're going to blow exactly. it open for him for him and eventually ragvenda admitted me to the ashram i was allowed through the gate yes there must have been oh 70 meditators present as well as the beatles i mean because he ran this ashram so the beatles didn't have a private they, they, they were had a group. So they had a bungalow to themselves. Yeah. And they also had provisions uh, that were sent in from London because the, uh, <clears throat> the, the food that was being served at the common table was wanting. Uh, w- yes. Very, very bland. Yeah. Some, uh, some, un- some unseasoned doll. <laughs> yes. But, you know, I attended the, some of the open sessions. I had, and uh, I would have an occasional. Uh, aside with one of the Beatles, I mean McCartney, I thought was uh, had a wonderful sense of humor, and and so did Ringo. I never really got far enough into abstraction to understand Lennon, but there were a lot of other people to write about. I mean, there, you know, I had a conversation with Mia Farrow. He showed, she showed up. The most beautiful model in the world at that time was a girl named Marissa Berenson. Sure. And she showed up with her French boyfriend who had a mink coat. And then the Beach Boys showed up and Donovan showed up. There was the wife of an Air Force colonel from California who had been living in Beverly Hills. But her husband had left her one night because a UFO had landed on the lawn of, of their house in Beverly Hills, and, and he had gone with them. There, there were a lot of characters. And up until then, it's you and Mr. Snare taking pictures in Oakland, and then you come and do the general uh, general assignment, and you're covering Wagner et al. in New York for the trip. Yeah, yeah. But would you say there was a time in your writing, was there a moment, and can you track it? Was there something happening in the country? Because I'll give you in a prefatory way, like a story about my dad. My dad turned 40 in 1967, and when he turned 40, he was a school teacher making no money, uh, had six children back in the day when people had six children on faith. You know, there was this yeah. believed in providence, right. these Irish Catholics. And in the ensuing 12 months from the fall of 1967, my father, who was a staunch Democrat, he was a Democratic committeeman and a very progressive uh, Democrat when I was young, in the ensuing 12 months, King is shot. Kennedy is shot. My father's political nemesis is resurrected from the dead. The Democratic Convention is a, is a debacle in Chicago. Nixon becomes president, and his mother dies that October. So in that 12 months, like everything my father held dear just se- seemed to come crashing down. And I will say that my father was never the same again. Was there some series of events, was a period you went through when everything started to get a lot more real to you politically? Um, a period in our history, perhaps. Well, there were several. I mean, I said earlier when I was talking about the uh, about the Maharishi, it was 67. It wasn't. It was 68. 
And that is the, it's the same month as, as Tet. And that's the same year as, as Kennedy and uh, King. King and Chicago. And, uh, Chicago and Nixon. And Nixon. On the other hand, uh, I was kind of prepared for that because when I was in Cambridge, England, and, and here I'm still 20, you know, 22 years old, young, and at, at Yale, I have not been a, um, I, I wasn't a white shoe type guy. I, I, I didn't, I went to one football game my freshman year, and then I spent the rest of the weekends in New York because that was wonderful in New York in, in the 50s. I mean, I had access to an apartment that Auden would sometimes hold forth in down in the village. And my idea of an evening would be to go to listen to Auden hold forth and then go up to Birdland and listen to Parker mm-hmm. uh, play and the, uh, or Mingus and, or go over to the uh, <coughs> Whitehorse Tavern and watch Dylan Thomas drink himself to death. I mean, I was right. extreme. I mean, I was in love with, Very with rich the poetry. Time. I knew I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know what kind of a writer. But then I go to England. The fall of 1956 is the uprising in Hungary and the uh, Suez crisis. And a couple of the young Englishmen that I had become friends with went to Hungary to take part in the uh, protest against the Soviets. And one of them was killed. If you remember the history, we had promised, the CIA had promised uh, to back uh, the Hungarian Revolution, which, of course, we did not. Then I suddenly was asked to explain the Suez uh, policy of John Forster Dulles, which I, I couldn't do because I hadn't been reading as an undergraduate newspaper, as I'd been reading Auden or Brecht or literature. And I decided when I first came back to America in the summer of 1957, I went to Washington to apply for, for jobs. I went applied to the Washington Post, the White House, to see if I could get some sort of you know, clerk's job in the basement. And I went to apply for uh, uh, the CIA. What did you imagine you were going to have to offer the CIA? What were you going to do? I was going to— uh, well, right. It was totally—no, it was totally romantic. It, it was trench coat, last train to Berlin, blonde. Fighting communism. Fighting communism. <laughs> I, I passed the, the mental test, and I passed the physical and psychological test, and then I had the interview with some, what they said, some of the younger guys— I'm 22. These these guys must have been somewhere between 27, 30. I mean, like that. All Yale looked like, sounded like George W. Bush. W. W. So this, you're, you're saying there's a what kind of a, a demeanor to them? Frat boy demeanor? Yeah. These are the kind of guys that I had avoided during my entire four years. Yeah. At you, Yale. Were, you were at the ball game. You were reading Ionesco. Uh, I'm I'm in New York, right? But I've studied. For this, I haven't quite written things on my cuff, but I I'm prepared. I mean, I I know the four roads into the Argonne Forest. I am prepared to talk about the Romanov dynasty. I know about Stalin's crimes, and you know, I'm, first question, Alec. I, I'm not making this up. You were standing on the 
13th tee of the National Golf Links in Southampton. <laughs> what club do you hit? I got that one right. I'd done that. I, I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> Second question. 6 p.m. last week in August, you were coming in on the final approach to the Yacht Club at Hay Harbor in Fishers Island. What tack are you on? I knew that, too, because I'd done that, too. So you're doing well. Two for three. Third, does Minxie, I can't remember Minxie's last name, wear a slip? Minxie was the great nymphomaniac of, of the, the Ivy League circuit in, in the 50s, and not to have known Minxie was not to have lived. And, and right. Not, to, not have to have known her wardrobe. Yes. And I, I said to them, gentlemen, uh, my information is secondhand. I, I've had rumors, French silk, Belgian lace. But, I hear tell. But I, I, sources are untrustworthy <laughs> and we're usually drunk. And then I said, and besides that, I apologize for wasting your time. And I got up and walked out. I thought, my God, I mean, if, if, if this is... The fence, I've got to jump. I've never been surprised since right. about the blunders. <laughs> See, I, I mean, I mean, the arrogance, the, the idea that they... Yeah, we'll, we'll figure out your knowledge of Yugoslavian history later on or, you know, or of that region. Are yeah. you one of us? Yeah, yeah. Are you fit for the fraternity? Are yeah. you the right sort? Are you that, one that, of us? That was it. Thus, Lewis Lapham tossed aside another career possibility. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. More in a minute. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest Lewis Lapham's job at the Saturday Evening Post abruptly ended when the magazine folded in 1969. He was quickly hired at Life magazine, which also went bust. In 1970, Lapham joined Harper's Magazine, where, except for some intervening years, he stayed until 2006. Lapham started at Harper's as a contract writer and soon became an editor. He has mentioned that he, quote, edited the magazine with a sympathy for the writer rather than the editor, end quote. And as you know, Alec, I mean, you know, good writing, good essay writing, good any kind of writing is, is, a, is an adventure. I mean, you, you really don't know where you're going to end up. It's not a programmatic. It's not like writing an annual report or, or writing a... Uh, uh, you know, a baseball score. So over the course of time, I taught myself to write essays. And when did you take over the show over there? I took over the show in 1975. And you created the Harper's Index, correct? Yeah, but I do that later. I do the, I'm now the editor of 75, and then I get fired in 1981 because by this time, it's changed hands. It's now in the hands of the MacArthur Foundation from... Chicago, and the first time I was introduced to the the board, I, I knew that it was curtains over. It, it's not a question <laughs> of whether I was going to be fired next week or next month, but it was six months later because they didn't like what I wrote. I mean, I was writing uh, essays that were sometimes critical of American uh, policy, politics, culture. So, so seven. So, uh, you said eighty-one. Yeah, eighty-one. They give you the heave ho, and then yeah. what happens? Then I spent two years in exile, and then uh, young John MacArthur, heir to the MacArthur Foundation fortune, became a member of the board, and I was uh, reinstated. I said, Rick, I'll be happy to go back, but only if, A, I can fire all the members of the board that fired me, and two, that I can completely redesign the magazine. And when do you invent the uh, index? Right, so when I come back. I mean, I, I redesigned well, the whole thing. Idea? And, and when you say redesign, it was in order to do what? You're just the layout. Well, yeah, I, I, I brought the readings to it. The I bought notes, the index. Reading, yeah. now, now, when you started your own magazine, when you started uh, Lapis, Lapis Quarterly, Quarterly yeah. whose idea was that? Mine. I okay. mean, it was something I'd wanted to do for a long time. I mean, they, again, it goes back to my... Um, interest in history. The, the quarterly... There's a lot of history in the quarterly. What it is is the great books made topical. I mean, I, I take a subject in the news, war, money, politics, right. nature, medicine, and then assemble texts. My contributors are people like uh, uh, Aeschylus, Cicero, Gibbon, Machiavelli, Shakespeare... <laughs> It's based on my notion that, uh, or it's actually the notion of the German poet Goethe is talking about history, and he says, history is, it's our inheritance. The story on the old walls or printed in the old books is also our own story. And Goethe says, he who cannot draw on 3,000 years is living hand to mouth. <laughs> and that's true. You find history exhilarating. I do. I find it. And, and essential. Essential. I find it a great source of energy and hope. I mean, 
You have a quote here in which you say the reading of history damps down the impulse to slander, the trend and tenor of the times, instills a sense of humor, lessens our fear about what might happen tomorrow. That's true. When you understand the obstacles that people have had to overcome, nothing that improves man's condition and circumstance is accomplished without going up against very heavy odds. This is what history teaches you. So that you don't despair of your your own time. You don't say, God, America is in decline. If you look at history, then America's always been in decline. Yeah. If you look at history, a golden age was really just the time when they got away with it. That's right. History is not what happened 200 or 2,000 years ago. It's a story about what happened 200 or 2,000 years ago. what people wrote about what happened to them. Yeah, that's right. Now, you have how many children? Three. And are any of them involved in publishing at all? No. No. Do they have, are they deeply political people? Are they have strong political opinions? Do they share yours for that matter? My older son does to, to some degree. My older, my older what son. What does he do for a living? If I may he's, ask, he's in the financial business he, in private equity in Toronto, in Canada. Right. How did he end up up there? He ended up at the, up there because he married a, a Canadian girl, and also Toronto is a pretty good place to live. I mean, he has four children. He, he could provide for them a, a better life there than he he could say in New York City. And what about your other two children? My daughter is married to an Italian prince and lives outside Rome. And my younger son is also in the financial business, and he is working in a small venture capital firm in Monaco. Did you ever think you'd have kids and you'd be able to say that? You have three kids, and all three of them live overseas. And we're all out three, of the country. Yeah, all three of them One in overseas. Canada, one in Rome, one in Monaco. Right. Yeah. And my six grandchildren are all overseas, too, four, four of them. Do you travel there all the time? I travel not all the time, but I, I travel— uh, Enough to keep it warm. Yeah, and they come here. Now, uh, you obviously are very keen on history, and that's, yeah. uh, and that's uh, um, embedded in much, if yeah. not all, of your writing. And for people who don't know you, you're a very handsome, very elegant, the pocket square, the crisp suit, the tie— you're a very handsome devil, you know, and I'm sure that every yeah. door has been open to you for you over the years. You're great. You're the person everyone wants, wants to sit next to at a dinner. Yeah. And my question becomes, I'm going to name five figures from history, and I'll keep naming some until we get it right, because maybe, maybe, maybe the answer is you never met them and you had no opinion of them. But I'll name some over the course of American history, and you tell me what your assessment of them was, to the extent you're willing to. Yeah. Um, either John or Robert Kennedy. Did you meet either one of them? I met them both. What were the circumstances of meeting John? It was a party. It's actually, I met them both at the same time. It was a party given for Teddy Kennedy. And it was a birthday party for Teddy. And I, it's either 62 or 63. Southampton? No, New York, Fifth right. Avenue. They had a big apartment on Fifth Avenue. Right. I was, at the time, uh, going out with a young lady who was also going out with Bobby. Right. I was a beard at, at the You're see. familiar with that term. Yes. At, at, at the dinner. You were a contract beard. Yeah. This is 62. I think this is 62. You're 27 years old. Yeah, it's either 62 or 63. What would you make of either one of them? 
I, what I, do you make of them in retrospect in history? Through, through the prism of history, what do you think about either one of them? I'm learning to like them more now than I did then. Let's go back. I'm the UN correspondent for the Herald Tribune when Kennedy is inaugurated. The speech asks not what America can do for you, right. what you can do for America. I'm watching it with the correspondents from foreign correspondents. And the guy from Le Monde listens to that speech and says, that's the worst naive... Treacle. Treacle, right. <laughs> I almost got in a fight with him, right? I was very gung-ho, Kennedy. I, I, and the, uh, I think seeing him in, in the setup at the... UN. At Smith's, no, at Smith's apartment was, was a... A real uh, disappointment. He seemed like he was a guy who was hounded uh, by demons. And the, uh, you know, I also knew something about his relations with women at the time. It so you was, didn't think he had his house in order enough to be president? No, I didn't president. think so. Yeah. And uh, what about his brother? Did you get the same feeling? His brother, brother I thought, was a bully. Right. Because many, many people have a very and, and negative the, assessment of him up until his brother's killed. Uh, yeah. Did you meet Nixon? Yes, I met Nixon once, and I'm <laughs> trying to remember. I, I had a, I never liked or trusted Nixon, and I can't remember where I met him. I met him someplace in California, but at a distance. I mean, I was never, I, you know, I was part of a crowd or, or something. I, but isn't it interesting how people that I know who are not as astute as you are about history, but they're students of history. They're, they're certainly students of American history. Yeah. They certainly know the the. the political history of this country, yeah. and uh, many of my friends who are politically active, and I mean beyond writing checks and that yeah. kind of, uh, uh, you know, that kind of uh, political class where it's all about giving money, and in that world, uh, I've, I've heard people say, God, I, I take Nixon back tomorrow compared to these guys that are here, I and mean, there was a lot of good with Nixon. Do you agree with that? I don't know enough to, to agree or disagree with it. I know that he backed the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. Right. I know that he backed the... Uh, What's the Unemployment Act that, that if you get hurt? Workman's compensation. But there was a lot of good under Nixon. Yeah. What I, do you think of Rom? What did you think of Romney? And more importantly, in, in, inside the question of what you think of Romney, what do you think about, shall we say, the casting department of the Republican Party? They seem to, because Obama was theirs for the taking, don't you think? I think Obama could have been uh, defeated. Yeah, I think he was lucky to win. Just the way I think he was. Uh, Lucky to win, uh, you know, in, in 2008 when <laughs> the Republicans put up Sarah Palin. <laughs> but, uh, yes, the I thought it was a pretty uh, clownish uh, group of uh, primary candidates that were fielded by the, right. the Republicans. The, my sense of, of Romney, I, again, I saw him in a small room once, but... We, you know, trying to drum up money from some Wall Street guys in New York, he didn't come off any differently than he than he. You've seen him on television. It was almost impossible for Romney to overcome what Gingrich said about him during the primary. Yeah. Um, what do you think about Obama? I think Obama means well. Um, you think that's enough these days? Probably not. Again, how much can a president really accomplish is is, is another problem. I mean, you, you I, I don't think he's the he likes politics in the same way that, say, Johnson did. Right. Johnson really wanted to, to use the office of the presidency to do something. 
and knew how to make it work, knew that it was political. I'm never sure that Obama is about anything other than a striking of poses, nor am I sure that that is not what the office of the presidency has become. Why anybody would want to become president of the United States is, is, is something that I have... Uh, I can't imagine wanting to do that because when you think about what is that life like, I mean, you're surrounded by people that are probably lying to you. I mean, it's like a life at court in in um, Queen Elizabeth's England or Louis XIV's France. It's cold-hearted self-interest. It's not uh, – it re- require a degree of uh, vanity that, that – uh, you know, I, I can I can imagine it, but it, but it's yeah. it, it, it's. Uh, well, we've heard that comment before, where people have said, uh, the the type of man or woman that would want to be president now is someone we certainly don't want to be president. Yeah, now. probably not. Lincoln wanted to be president. He wouldn't have wanted to run for. I mean, his running for a second term. I mean, he was reluctant. I mean, you know, there are people that are happy to leave the office. To leave the stage. To leave the stage. (laughs) As my one friend said about one political figure, that he just doesn't know when to leave the stage. It's a a thankless task, Alec. Really, it is. It's service. It's, yeah. It's it's, service. It's it's, it's service to your country. Yeah. Lewis Lapham continues to serve his country. At 77, he still goes to work every day at Lapham's Quarterly. After our conversation, I wondered why Lapham hadn't cultivated more personal relationships with the political leaders of his day. So... Hello? It's Alec Baldwin calling for Mr. Lapham. Mr. Lapham is speaking. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Lewis, when you were here and we talked about, you know, something, a number of things, but one thing that kind of stuck in my mind was that you had this access to all of these political figures, government leaders of their time and so forth, and you were around them and reporting about them. And yet it sounds to me like you didn't make them intimates of yours. No, I did not. And I was wondering why was that the case? Well, because I I thought of myself as a uh, journalist, and I wanted to be free to uh, say what I thought or report what I thought I'd seen. And I didn't want to become um, obligated. I wanted to keep a safe distance. <laughs> you know, I appreciate that because I mean that's a very common thing that people, uh, you know, you know when when the political leaders started to you know hang out and party with the press, yeah. when they invited them in the door to stay, yeah, everything began to change. Yeah, everything does begin to change, and that's what begins to happen, of course. Uh, in the 60s, when politics becomes glamorous and Kennedy and Camelot and, and the heady association with power, it, it's... You would ascribe that phenomenon kind of beginning with Kennedy? Well, that was when I first became aware of it. I mean, I'm sure it was true at the court of Louis the Fourteenth and, <laughs> and Elizabeth I. <laughs> it's true of any court society. I once wrote a um, 
essay about the American media. The title was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, mm-hmm. and, and that's the way I tend to think of the Washington press corps. The struggle for me is that if you, and I don't mean to sound lofty here, but you have kind of a Clinton war room, Carville-esque approach toward dealing with the media, which is that you put out every fire and you address every issue where your name is dragged in. Yeah. Or you you try to remain above the fray and ignore it, knowing that we'll all, I mean, unless there's real criminal charges at stake, you know that uh, it will dissipate. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for me. In other words, do you think I'm better off where there's nothing serious involved, do you think I'm better off not engaging and letting it go and it just wafts away like smoke? Or do you think that journalism today and the media establishment today is a bull I need to be fighting from time to time? I don't think you need to fight it, Alec, because you'll always lose. Can I tell you a uh, my introduction to that? Yes. My first lesson in, in, in this was in the Oakland City Hall press room. I, I mentioned Seymour Snare, but the, the press room is in the same building as the police department and the courts and the mayor's office. The head of the vice squad was anxious to become a particular friend of the media and of the press, and so that the press would play him as, as a, an heroic figure, which the press obligingly did. The vice squad guy, also had a girlfriend who was a serious nymphomaniac. He used to make her available to the members of the press room on you know the, the third Friday of every month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was very good looking, but she had only one leg. She was a beautiful one-legged nymphomaniac who was the paramour of the head of the vice squad. Exactly. And I, being the cub, I was not invited to the Friday afternoon celebrations, nor did I want to be. But the day then comes when she was married and the lady's husband files divorce suit and names the vice squad captain as the correspondent. I was in the press room the day that that announcement was made, and suddenly... These four guys, you know, rise reluctantly to their typewriters and begin to write morally outraged editorials. How can such things be? How can our fair city of Oakland tolerate the behavior of a corrupt police captain? I mean, you see what I mean? I mean, they, they turned on a dime. What I'm telling you is the media is is not trustworthy. Yeah. It's Claude Rains closing down the casino. Yeah. I'm outraged. Yeah. I'm outraged. And the guy will yes, say, right. you're shocked. winning, sir. I'm shocked. <laughs> shocked that there's gambling here. You're winning, sir. Right. Yeah. It's not good to get in the, involved, I don't think, in an argument with the media because they always have the last word. You, you want to know something? You've just done me a big favor. Your pen is mighty. Your mind and your, your words are mighty. And with a single phone call here, you have crushed my entire public relations apparatus into powder. But I'm grateful to you for it. Thanks. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.